Nicely, nicely, and they are nicely. Terrible and severe, awaiting the signal for the woeful struggle of his kingship's tournament. To be carried out in the form of combat ordered by her queenship. It's only a lot of years now they're talking about poor George. And you find it strange now, I do, to you. yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's not a very fair to him somewhere or another mm-hmm. that he didn't see. Yeah. I don't know that he didn't see that he'd get on and do better than he did. And which was first invented by her queenship to supersede and take the place of all vulgar forms of combat as was suitable in the eyes of her queenship, displaying ferocity and tortuosity by regulated impetuosity, animosity developing precocity but eliminating monstrosity and curiosity. And her queenship ought be proud and should be proud and is proud that the challenges are arranged to her queenship's fancy. From my point of view, George has always puzzled uh, the critics, his excellence has always shone out, but uh, the critics seemed, even in the early days, to actually pinpoint the point at which this excellence arrives in the Irish drama. I think he's a unique figure in Irish drama. The life of George Fitzmaurice was one of paradox. The playwright, who wouldn't go to see a play, least of all his own, but preferred the music hall instead. The civil servant who yearned for country life, yet spent most of his retirement in Dublin. The child of a Church of Ireland minister and a Catholic mother who became an agnostic. The man who was in delicate health throughout his life, yet lived to the age of 86. And sadly, a unique writer whose best work was ignored at a time of life when he most needed success. In the last century, the Fitzmaurices were one of the biggest land-owning families in Kerry. His father went to Trinity College and, during the famine years, became a Church of Ireland minister in Kilcoran County, Limerick. At the age of 39, he caused an undoubted sensation when he married Winifred O'Connor, a 19-year-old serving girl who lived on one of the Fitzmaurice farms in Douai, halfway between Abbeyfield and Listowel. As a result of this marriage, George's father received no further preferment. Instead, he lived with his wife and family in Bedford House, two miles outside Listowel, where he busied himself with farming, helping to educate his children, and racing greyhounds. His best known was a black greyhound, appropriately called Othello. George was the tenth child in a family of eleven, and when his father died, he moved with the family from Bedford House back to the Fitzmaurice estate in Kilcara. There they lived in comfort on the 160-acre farm on the banks of the field. In those days, before the Neatemere decree, It was a custom in mixed marriages to bring up the sons in the religion of the father and the daughters in the religion of the mother. However, all the Fitzmaurices were brought up as Protestants, even after the death of their father, and even though their mother still attended the Catholic Church. The return of his mother, Winifred, to Kilcara must have created quite a stir. Once a servant girl, she was mistress now of Kilcara and connected to the best-known families in Kerry and there were great advantages in the new situation for the locals too. Now, for the first time, they could relate to the big house. They had access to it and took advantage of their good fortune. Local women vied with each other as to who would help, and the men congregated to assist on the farm. George's mother was very reserved, as they described it. The whole family was very gentlemanly. 
you could face them for anything, was how another local described them. And so Kilkara became open house to one and all, and no doubt gave a great stimulus to the rather narrow confines of rural life at the turn of the century. But the change must have even left a greater impression on the mind of the fourteen-year-old boy. Now, for the first time, he came into contact with those characters he was later to depict in his plays. Wicked old children was how he mischievously described them to Austin Clark many years later. Characters like his own maternal uncle, Brown Bat, or Bat Aaron, as he was called. The characters around the place were... You couldn't meet him anywhere now, anyway. He had an uncle, we used to call him Brown Bat. And Brown lived in the big field now there, at the far straight over in front of the, of the hall door. He had an attached cabin there. He wore all his beard, kind of a reckless, if you like, and his wife then, Johanna, was a, was a character that used to, the nerves you'd get out of in the summertime, and she'd be bad for about maybe four or five months, and they'd have to take her to the mental home until the later years she, she didn't get knocked out so bad. But he, Brown had terrible sayings, and Brown kept a lot of goats. He kept a puck. He kept cows. He kept sows, bonnets, and whatnot. And he used to knock desperate value out of that to see Brown chasing after those, and then in the summer time, the, he had two or three rows of gooseberries, you know, planted in front of the house, and all the people around the place just gathered up to Brown's at night, reading these gooseberries and Brown having, chasing them here, there, and everywhere. He'd be chasing one crow down towards the river, and he'd been chasing another crow up towards the road, and he had most com comical ways now, if you like, and George used to enjoy them. Mrs Minnie Mulcair, who was a friend and relation of George's. One unusual factor concerning the Fitzmaurice family was that none of them ever married. By nature they were very quiet and reserved, but one gets the impression that they never quite fitted into either community. Even still, locals refer to the sisters who stayed in Kilcara as Miss Una and Miss Georgina. The gap always remained. Likewise, it is true to say that they did not mix much with the gentry, and so they were caught between two stools, lacking a real identity. Although George, in his personal life, was somewhat affected by this, as a writer it became an advantage. It enabled him to stand off from each community and see them with a fresh eye. He had no portfolio for either religion. He wasn't obsessed with pishogues and cures. He could write on the theme of patriotism without having to invoke Huchollan-like figures. He could look at life through his own particular magic glasses and see, beneath the façade of legend, superstition and religion, man, a preoccupied, puppet-like figure, expending his energy, noisy, boisterous and vainglorious, rarely questioning his existence. Perhaps one of the best examples of this can be found in one his one-act play, The Piedish. Dismissed by the critics as a wretched nothing when first presented in the Abbey in 1909, this beautifully symbolic play centres around an old man, Liam O'Donoghue, who has spent all his life in the making of a pie dish. Now, as death approaches, he is surrounded by his unfeeling daughter and grandsons, and the father Troy, who has come to anoint him. But still, the old man's thoughts are on his pie dish. 
Oh, Father, try do something for him, and you haven't the power. St. Joseph and all the saints in heaven pray for him. My poor man, give yourself up now to the good God and to his holy mother, and put all thoughts of this sinful world away from your heart entirely. It's my pie dish I'm thinking of, I'm telling you. My poor old man, what concern is it to you now, a miserable pie dish? Liam Donahue, let me administer to you the last rites of our holy mother, the church. Tisn't to be anointed, I will. Go from me. Oh, my pie dish. My Pidish. Liam Donahoe, your hour has come. His hour has come. Oh, saints in heaven, pray for him before it's too late entirely. Was it the priest said my hour has come? It's black lies he's telling me. Tisn't my hour that has come to me. Good God above in heaven, tisn't without mercy you would be. And to take me out of the water like this. Oh, the pain that's through me. Good God, give me time. It's surely you'll give me time. I pray for time to finish my pidish. Oh, isn't this a terrible pain entirely? God above, isn't the time I will get after all? God oh, is killing me, that pain is. Good God in heaven, it's time I must get. If it isn't time from God I'll get, maybe the devil will give me time. Let the devil himself give me time then. Let him give me time to finish my pidish. And it says I'll be forever more body and soul. There, it's in bits now. And what it was or what it wasn't, no one in the wide world will be a pin's point the wiser forevermore. It's a scruple, Anne John. If it's gone entirely without the rights, he is. And the priest up to his hip itself. He is dead, and it's likely he is damned. Dead and damned, Jack. And it's disgraced will be over him during the duration of time through the length and breadth of Europe. What folly and vanity there do be in this short world. But what was in this at all? What was in this at all? The Pidish was in fact the second play of his performed at the Abbey. But his first play, and his greatest commercial success, was a comedy called The Country Dressmaker. It was produced in October 1907. By this time George was working as a clerk in the Land Commission in Dublin and was already the writer of several stories which were published in the Weekly Freeman and The Nation at the beginning of the century. Earlier in the year 1907, Singh's Playboy had caused a riot at the Abbey, and there were fears that Fitzmaurice's comedy might provoke a similar reaction. But on the opening night the audience was enthusiastic, and Joseph Holloway noted in his diary, the comedy was not long on its way when it was easy to see that Fitzmaurice had a grip on his subject and his dialogue was the real article. Two natives of Kerry sat before me and assured me that the turn of phrase of the Kerry people was aptly copied and that the types were perfect specimens of ordinary folk to be met with down there. Applause followed each act and repeated calls for author at the end had to be acceded to before the audience would be satisfied. Quite a young man modestly bows his thanks and acknowledgement. The large audience was delighted with the comedy. Indeed, the types were perfect specimens. Locals today still associate the country dressmaker in the play with Kate Gare and Matt Dillon with Bat Dillon, who lived as tenant on the Fitzmaurice farm. In his plays, Fitzmaurice used the authentic dialogue of North Kerry. Lines are dotted with words like Magrum, Cogle, Utamali, Tasby, Lubra, Bulamshee, and phrases like Rise up in your dignity. The whisk of him and he coming through the meadow. You think he owned the moon? Peg away, old hairpin. And that curse of all countrymen trying to speak politely in Dublin, he's abroad in the yard. 
WB Yeats, whose treatment of Fitzmaurice has become the cause of much argument, wrote as follows a few days after the opening performance of The Country Dressmaker. I have just come up from Cool for the production of a new play called The Country Dressmaker. It is by a new writer called Fitzmaurice. A harsh, strong, ugly comedy. It really gives a much worse view of the people than the playboy. Even I rather dislike it, though I admire its sincerity. And yet it was received with enthusiasm. We have had another performance of The Country Dressmaker since I wrote, and the success was greater than before. The dear Freeman, or rather its evening issue is called by another name, has congratulated us on having got a play at last which nobody can take the slightest exception, or some such words. And yet Fitzmaurice, who wrote it, wrote it with the special object of showing up the sordid side of country life. He thinks himself a follower of Singh, which he is not. I have now no doubt that there will be enthusiasm tonight, and that the author, who has been thirsting for the crown of martyrdom, will be called for before the curtain for the third time running. We are putting the play on again next week, owing to its success. The play concerns the matchmaking between the country dressmaker and her boyfriend, Pat Connor, on his return home from America. His money attracts the attention of a rival family also, the Clahasses. It deals both with the economics of rural marriage and, on a more important level, with Julia Shea's realisation that dreams and reality are never the same. The play became one of the greatest money spinners for the Abbey, being revived every year from 1912 to 1925, and then later in 1942, 43, and 49. It was during the period from 1907 to 1913 that Fitzforest wrote his best work. The Magic Glasses, the Dandy Dolls, the Moonlighter, the Pie Dish, the Country Dressmaker. All these were written during this period, and it was then also that he began work on The Enchanted Land and The King of the Barnumen. Owing to ill health, he had to leave the civil service in 1908, and did not return until 1913, and so he was able to devote all his time to writing at home in Kilcara. It was at this time also that Brian McMahon's story of the rabbit trapper probably took place. It was an old rabbit trapper here in town. I think his name was Clara, Clara Leahy. And he told me that once he was out at Kilcara and he put in, he put in a ferret into a rabbit warren. And he said uh, the rabbit warren was on the side of a fence. And he said after a while the ferret, as they say, lid up, which means the ferret eats a rabbit down in the deeps of the earth and then refuses to come out because he's, he's pretty full. And um, Clara told me that he put his ear to the burrow to see what he, or to hear, the, possibly hear the thumping of the, of the ferret or the rabbit below. And he said, to my astonishment, I heard a voice coming out talking about princes and princesses and fairy winds and fairy men and changelings and people in lofts and tunes and battle banners. And he said, I, I thought I was being bewitched, and then I looked through the fence, and in Clara's words he said, Who should I see marching up and down the field outside but the son of, Pat, of, of Parson Fitzmaurice making up his plays? Another person who remembered George in those days is 80-year-old Abbeyfield publican Jimmy Joy. He was a great, he was a great sport, and he was awfully decent. But George, made the point he gave George Connor. And, and, and uh, plenty drink. I said, George, George often went home from my feeling he didn't know what he was going or coming. 
What about George? George? Oh, yeah, I'd be fine. He'd be fine, Marie. He'd have the And how would they get home? Oh, that trap. The train trap. Into the door. You see, work around a lot on the farm, George. Yeah, uh, he, he'd tip away, but he wouldn't do much. <laughs> he'd, he'd, he wouldn't just smoke. Hi. He used, oh, he used to because when I, I, went, I brought down two pipes belonging to him. That mm-hmm. <laughs> no, one, no. Yeah. Uh, he, he used to hit the town there, and, you know, when, when the, the tears come up, you know, hit the town and smoke away, and he'd be describing himself, George Carver, George Carver was a great friend of his, you know, and he used to be drawing him and everything. And that, would awful, that would be awful sport. What would they be talking about? About everything, about they'd be talking about women, and they'd be talking about about greyhounds and and, and, and cattle and horses and everything. <laughs> Jimmy Joy, and another local farmer, Mick Burns, also remembers the Fitzmaurice family in those days. First member of the Fitzmaurice family was in 1914. I took a, pre- a present over here. 19th of Christmas of 1914. They used to uh, like hair soup and uh, St. Stephen's Day, I took, they were all at home. And I took them down the hair that was killed in the, the open coursing. And uh, I met all the Fitzmaurice's there. Do you remember it was George there that year? Yes, George was. The George always came back. All the Fitzmaurice's came back for Christmas to their old home. Can you can you now cast your mind back and, and see George in 1914? Can you see him now as he was then? What was he I like? George, uh, yes, middle size. Age, used to speaking very fast, not much talk, only just, uh, you know, the real Dublin accent for him and all which. After the success of The Country Dressmaker, it is quite likely that he thought he could make his living as a writer. However, when his next play, The Pie Dish, was poorly received, the Abbey was very wary about putting on any of his new plays. The Dandy Dolls was rejected by them at this time, and when he wrote his first and last serious play, The Moonlighter, based on the land troubles, it was accepted for presentation, but the play was never staged. The rejection of these two plays must have been heartbreaking, especially The Moonlighter, which, if it had been staged then, and one cannot see any real reason why it wasn't, must have established him as a leading playwright. The play has a great relevance today, asking the begging question, who is the real patriot? Definitely not, he suggests, the sole property of the drum-beating, self-righteous, self-labelled national heroes. The Moonlighter contains some of Fitzmaurice's finest straight writing. For example, take the character of Big William Cantillon. In this character is sketched the great land hunger which existed throughout the country then. In the following extract, Big William Cantillon is seeking a loan from his brother to buy another farm. This character reminds one very much of Bull McCabe in John B. Keane's The Field. John B. who has been greatly influenced by the writing of Fitzmaurice. Listen to me, I must have that hundred pound. God above if who knew the horrible fright came on me coming from town. At the first glimpse I got of the big bush on the height that chose the Lucy's farm sloping away to the east. Mud Pringle has taken his rattle in my throat. I bait the horse to a foam and sweat, and galloping like the devil for three miles, I never threw bridle till I reached the boreen. Out of the car I leapt and across the bone ditch, the eyes flying out of my head looking to see if Pringle was walking the farm. Down with me to the river half mad. 
And Lord, when I saw the rich brown bank above the water and the soft green grass waving over the verge, I was fit to eat my fill of that lovely earth and that lovely grass, Maliki Cantlin. You'd be as well employed talking to that stone wall as to me. Be off, I'm telling you. Are you a brother at all, you gombean hag? Look at the way I was screeching all night in my sleep, and I hadn't every nightmare Pringle had the land. My son John is as bad. At break of day, he leapt out in the middle of the floor. Take that land, father, said he, and don't be courted by no man. But I want a hundred pound. You'll not get a hundred fardings. I'll open the field and roar. I'll start mother with the high clipper of nationality, Eugene. You outrageous villain. Lend it to him, Maliki. Lend him the hundred pounds. I'll not lend him the price of a box of matches. You'll be well secured. Here's the note. My name's it. John's name's it. And I'll guarantee the transaction will be a secret. And the grabbing won't be public until after the marrying of Eugene. Will that do? Will not do. Is it forcing me out to go over the hills, craving the Gombean Roach, and giving him the interest? Mightn't you as well have the big interest? How much interest? Big interest, great interest, as big as you asked it, Mantley Cantlin. The devil carry you. Here's the money. And now away with you in the shelter of the ditches, while I go down to them that's walking the land. Like the wind I came, and like the wind I'll go. Depend on me not to be seen, though there's a thing swelling in my chest this moment make me feel the size of an elephant. For Christ's above, I'll have the Lucy's land! But Fitzmaurice did have another one-act play performed at the Abbey in 1913, The Magic Glasses. Again, the critics panned it. The silliest production ever attempted on the Abbey stage was how Holloway described the play, which is now regarded as a classic. Thus begun the alienation of Fitzmaurice from the theatre, and the successful revival of The Country Dressmaker in 1914 was little consolation to him. When the First World War broke out, in the company of many of his colleagues in the Land Commission, he joined the British Army and served as a private in the Army Service Corps. On his return, he went home to Kilcara. This was when Hannah Stack, who lived in the old Fitzmaurice home until a few years ago, remembered seeing him for the first time. The first time I ever remember George was he was after coming from the Army. And I was only a kid, I suppose, coming from school. And I remember his mother sending me into the sitting room to lay the table for his dinner and there was little knives and forks and that's all was worrying me that the knife and fork wasn't big enough and it was off of the army I think it was. Was he he wasn't wearing his uniform at that time? Oh no, no. he had no uniform at that time, mm-hmm. no. And were they very proud of him at home at that time? Oh he was very he was very reserved, as mm-hmm. if he was nothing in the world to anybody. Mm-hmm. Only himself, there walk, he'd walk up and down that. He used to do his plays. There was a big parlour there, I suppose you didn't see it when you tried to the house. And he used to start there and he'd be talking to himself. We used to think he was talking to himself, he was. And he'd go on up the avenue to the very top of a field, there, 15 acre field. And he'd stop there and he'd settle out everything there. But when he returned to Dublin, his friends in the bodega were now talking about the rising which had taken place and had little time for the veteran of the 1914 war. He returned to his job at the civil service and to writing, but it was not until 1923 that his next play, Twixt the Giltonans and the Carmodies, was presented at the Abbey. It had a moderate success, but had not the force of his earlier works. His mind now was more occupied with political events and fears, How would he be treated in the new state? He had fought on the wrong side in the war. He was a Protestant, if only in name. Would he keep his job? What about Kilcara? His mother had died in 1919, and now Kilcara was being used as a special court by Republicans, 
and also used by them during the Civil War. He was still very often out of work through illness, and when he finished his great satirical fantasy, The Enchanted Land, he did not even seek an Abbey production for it. As the new state emerged in the twenties, and life returned to normal, his fears proved to be groundless, and his family still retained Kilkara. However, though he still wrote plays like The Linon She, The Green Stone, The Terrible Beast, Fitzmaurice faded from the theatrical scene, though his new plays were occasionally printed in the Dublin magazine by his friend, poet Seamus O'Sullivan. Still, he returned every year on his holidays to Kilcara, where he is still remembered with affection by the locals. If he met you on the road after coming home, you had to go out to do war with him. And even though at once in our time, in the early life, onto the thirties, we weren't drinking. But no matter how full you would be a minerals, you'd have to take it, you couldn't say no. But he still wanted to have the banger to, you see, going and coming from the village. You know, going and coming out towards Kilcar, and he, he was, he liked the young coming, the growing up people, you see. The youngsters, you know, like, with Jewish visit Fitzmaurice's. He always liked to meet us. And uh, that was nice. There was only one way by drinks then, to the old judges. You, you used to, um, to tell him a lot of the, the local news then at oh, that time. Oh, I'd tell him a lot of the local news, you know, but what I'd meet now on the road when I'd be going, maybe I might pay a wage there three or four times a day, mm -hmm. go in the morning. And would, would he be looking forward to you coming? Oh, he'd be looking forward to, to see what I'd, yeah. what had happened, what, what had any news from the road or what happened. Or, so another rambling house we'd have, Ted Gallivan's, there was only brother and sister there, and they were very comical too in their ways and we'd visit there and he'd want to know what was happening there and you know all that yeah. kind of stuff. And Used to do much visiting himself around the country. No, he'd do no visiting. He'd go to his tabby feet when he'd come home on holidays. You'd bring the drink to the house. The basket, you'd have to go for the basket and bring on the basket. Mm -hmm. Carry on, land on the, with the basket then that day. You would have the same the following day, and the same the day after. And, of course, then you'd get a tip then when he'd be gone, which, of course, was a great thing. But um, then he'd come, at, he'd go to the, the village then, maybe every evening, there was a couple of characters living on along the road, and he'd take them with him, and he'd be listening to them and what they had to say. And in 1942, he retired from the civil service at the age of 65. The only surviving members of his family then were his brother Ollie and sister Georgina, both of whom lived in Kilcara. But George, though visiting them often in retirement, still lived in Dublin, where he spent his time drinking in the evening with a few friends, going occasionally to the music hall and to Dalymount Park on Sundays, and having an odd flutter on the horses, picking only horses with a reference to kings in their names. In the mid-forties there was renewed interest in his work, when Austin Clark and Ribardo Farrakhan's Lyric Theatre Company staged The Magic Glasses and the first production of The Dandy Dolls. The Dandy Dolls is probably Fitzmaurice's most imaginative and high-flown fantasy. In this excerpt from The Dandy Dolls, one of the characters, the Grey Man, has come to warn the doll maker, Roger Carmody, and is confronted by Roger's wife, Coth. Well, surely you're a droll fellow, all merry man so gay, was that a snarl from a dog? That snarl was from himself out in the linny, the chronic, and he up to his ears this minute and making a brand new dandy doll. 
for tis worse than a surly master he is the time he does be manufacturing. And if a warrant rubbed a hair to him, he'd make a ferocious grin at you that wouldn't shame the old boy himself that's below in the pit of hell. Roger! Roger! Oh, here he comes, hopping. And Lord, the countenance of the devil with the temper flying out of his two eyes. In the name of God, is it in the other world I was with yourself and your dinner calls? The devil's cure to you for a bog lack. What a burst of music comes from you on the heel of the day, and people raising their heads and gaping at you from far and near. The Lord be thanked my doll was finished, for there's a rasp in your cracked old windpipe that would frighten a horse from its oats, and many a time that same old screamer was the means of my making a faulty doll. Oh, now it's me as done the harm, is it? But a time your old grandmother was the obstacle, not alluding to the day you aimed a prate at her and hit her on that woeful polypus she had upon her nose. And what about Peg, and the time you used to pull her by the hair of her head all around the kitchen floor? Your sister Peg, I'm alluding to a crippled Peg with a crooked eye. Lies and damn lies. Neither lies nor damned lies. And when it becomes you to be thrown the blame on more, you craven thing, hiding under the bed for yourself the time the hag's son would be coming onward in his prowl, leaving the tussle to Timmy and Farley, that little friend of yours that's always to the fore. More lies. For it's well yourself knows I used to fight and struggle till I could fight no more. Timmy Maria. Timmyin is willing, surely, but Timmyin is devilish weak. Oh, glory, after all he has done for you, the graceful nice garçon. What harm if it's ever a bullseye you brought him from a pattern or a fair? But you're dirty, mean and craven, and thankless now to both... Pig away, old hairpin, but you'll fail this turn, whatever, to put me in a wax. For the joy of the world is in me over my new dandy doll. As sound as black oak it is, thanks be to God. Look at it, so charming in its bibs, so gay. It's the finest doll I ever made, caught of the ugly snout. By this time, Fitzmaurice had become very embittered about the theatre. But Ribardo Farrakhan, when he became director of the Abbey, got his permission to revive once more the country dressmaker. What impression did he get of Fitzmaurice then? Uh, he was a very fiery old man, even though he was old when I met him. He would brook no contradiction, and um, it completely given up any interest in seeing his plays on the stage, though he never stopped writing. It's a very extraordinary thing. Uh, it was worthwhile meeting him, and I bitterly regret that I didn't record some of the things he said to me. For example, he spoke about uh, Singh, the playwright, and his descriptions of Singh were rather different from anything I'd heard from other people. One thing I do remember is saying that Singh rehearsed his own plays in the Abbey and was very definite in his views as to how they should be done and insisted on their being done. So the two men, I think, must have got on rather well. One person who saw that Lyric Theatre's production of The Magic Glasses was Liam Miller, whose Dolman Press have now published Fitzmaurice's plays in three volumes. He staged the magic glasses both in Dublin and London, also the first production of a new play, One Evening Gleam, which depicts Fitzmaurice's life in Dublin, and also the first production of The Moonlighter. This is how he recalls meeting George. When I met George, he was living in Stamer Street off the South Circular Road, and I called up with Morris Kennedy, who associated himself with me in the productions of the plays at that time, and we took him out for a pint. He was a small man, quietly spoken, very interested in the uh, music hall theatre. Uh, he told us he very often had been to London, looked at the music halls. He enjoyed 
a quiet evening in a pub, drinking a pint, talking to ordinary people, uh, and uh, this seemed to be the pattern of his life. He had reached the retiring age at this time, and his daily routine seemed to include a walk through Stephen's Green, and uh, perhaps a pint at the Winter Garden Palace, which he mentions in uh, one of his plays, uh, this large Victorian pub now closed on the corner of Stephen's Green, uh, read his papers and walk home to his lodgings in the evening. And at the same time, back in Kerry, writer Brian McMahon had also become interested in his work. Yes, well, I was always speaking about the, in the, in the, in the Stoll Drama Group, about, about trying to do one of George Fitzmaurice's plays. And I wrote to him and I said, Dear Mr. Fitzmaurice, won't you please come down? We'll put on one of your plays and we'll give you some honour so that a prophet may be known in his own country. And he didn't reply to this. And then we had a, we had a great bunch of actors at the time. Where we had people like, you know, Bill Carney, who was afterwards in the Peacock for a visit, John Flaherty, and we had Michael O'Connor and his sister, Mrs. Maloney, and we had Eamon Kelly with us, and we had a great bunch of people there. And uh, I knew we could do this play, so I, 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 I think I persuaded them to do it. And they did the magic glasses, and honestly, it was absolutely wonderful. We won an Athlone. We won the one act in Athlone. We were overjoyed. Mihal Hay, then a drama producer in Radio Erin, went down to Listowel and recorded the magic glasses. However, when he went to look for Fitzmaurice, he too had problems. I met him, but it took a long time to get around to that. We went to Listowel to, to record the local company, the Listowel Drama Group, in the Magic Glasses. And uh, they had had some, some success at festivals. They had a very good production of it, and I thought it was time that George Morris's works should be heard at least on the radio again. I went down there and recorded the play uh, a very good production in the authentic dialect of his native district. And uh, I found it hard to track him down because at that time he was living most of his time in Dublin, but he used to go down to Kilcara, the old home on the banks of the field from time to time. And I remember one day going out to Kilcara to look for George Fitzmaurice on the off chance that he might be, be down there. Now, it's not often that you... Um, hear an Irish bull, uh, except maybe um, you read of it um, uh, by English writers or hear it on the BBC. But I went out to the house where he lived, Kilcara, in among the hazel trees, and uh, I met a cousin of his, a Mrs. Stack. And I asked her, "Would was George Fitzmaurice about? And she said to me, he wasn't here now since he was down the last time. Well, it took a while. Uh, to pin him down in Dublin because he often changed address and eventually I think I tracked him down he was in Stamer Street off the South Circular Road at the time and I asked him to come in after he had sent me a letter saying that he, in his opinion um, this type of play was not suitable as he said for broadcasting activities I put forward all the arguments I could think of why he should allow this broadcast of the magic glasses. And he listened uh, courteously and patiently, and after I had spoken maybe for five minutes, um, he walked to the window and looked out, and he said, it would be a lovely day to be in Ballybunnen. I knew then that uh, 
There was very little hope in getting his permission. Here now is an extract from that recording of The Magic Glasses, made in 1954. The Magic Glasses, a play which contains two of Fitzmaurice's best-known creations, the quack healer, Morgan Quill, and Jaminy in the loft. Uh, yes, I, I have it. Put the tongs in the fire and redden it. Holy Father, man. Put the tongs in the fire and redden it. Hey, down there. Is the tail drawn yet? Tis drawn and, and shall it drawn, Germany. Tis, tis not drawn and tisn't wet itself. For it's after washing up the chain you are in the boiling water and putting cold water in the kittle. Don't be trying to blink me. For I heard the cover rattling and tis the same with you every day using the water and leaving me waiting for my tea. The selfishness of this world is a terror. But I'm warning you now, if the tears and drawn the minute I hop down out of this, there isn't a mug in the dresser I won't smash, and I'll break the window, and so every devil around the house will make it a sorry day to you, you got into the habit of reneging me in the tear. As peevish as a cat always when coming out of that top laugh, Mr. Quill. Here now, you vagabond. Isn't it on the table it is itself? And listen to me putting the sugar into it and stirring the sugar in the cup. And the white bread and jam. And the white bread and the jam. There now, isn't it quick enough for you, my walking gentleman upstairs? It will do. And tis to be hoped you'll be as regular for the future. It would be a great boon to me entirely. That jam is damn nice, mother dear. Down on your knees, you, <laughs> you haunted thing, you. Keep looking at me, or I'll send this red hot tongues fizzling down into your beastly guts. Sacramento Dominus Forbiscum Mia Culpa, Mia Maximum Culpa, Kyrielison Excelsior. I abjure thee by these words. Tell me what you are and what you aren't. Are you a Catholic? Aye, sir. Are you faith? Very good. And now, my bucko, if you are, maybe you'll say what I have to say after me. In the name of the Father. In, in the name of the Father. In the name of the Son. In the name of the Son. In the name of the Holy Ghost. Uh, in, in the name of the Holy Ghost. Uh, come along, here. You're some sort of a Christian anyway. It seems rather sad now to think that George never heard this production put on by the local group. But Brian McMahon, who had been looking for him for years, finally did manage to meet him, but under rather strange circumstances. Well, I, I went after him. I knew he was home. I knew he'd come home on holidays now and again. And I knew he'd deny being George Fitzmaurice to some extent. Well, if not deny it, well, indicate he didn't want any talking about um, about plays. So I got Mr. George Gleisure in the square, who was a great friend of his, to tell me if um, if he was home. And he he told me he was home, and I cycled out to the a couple of times, but I, I couldn't meet him. And eventually I did hold a conversation with him through a window. And it was a very illuminating conversation. I don't remember the details of it now, but he said he'd see me some other time. And then, for years, I hunted him in Dublin. I couldn't get to see him in Dublin. And uh, I remember one day, uh, I've told this before, but I'll tell it, it'll bear the telling again. Somebody asked me to give him a conscious, conscience message, some little trifling thing that troubled a person. And I wrote it down for fear to forget it, and I put it into an envelope. And I said, if I ever meet George Fitzmaurice, I'll give him this little news, and he'll be glad to hear it. Now, I carried that for three years in my pocket, and I couldn't catch up with George Fitzmaurice, and I had never seen his face. And one night, I was at a play in the gate. I remember the play was I Am a Camera. 
by by Druten or Van Druten, and uh, some I had to go away to uh, keep an appointment just before the play was over, and I went up along Grafton Street and I went into some one of these restaurants and I had something, some cup of tea or something like that. Now the street was absolutely crowded with people, and it dawned on me suddenly for no reason at all that George Fitzmaurice was somewhere about. I don't, I don't, I'm not a great believer in telepathy, but I'm not a disbeliever in telepathy either. But on an impulse, I got up in this crowded restaurant and walked out as far as the doorway and stood there for a while. Now, there were thousands of people on the street because they were coming out of the cinemas and the theatres. And I said to myself, what am I talking about? And I turned away back again. And suddenly, as I turned, I saw a little bent old man pass the door. And I went back and I sat down for surely five minutes. And, uh, the, I, and then I said to myself, I upbraided myself and I said, you're not following your hunch. Go and follow your hunch. And I went out to the door and I couldn't see any trace of, the, of this little bent over little man. He was in a pothook with age. So I said, where is he gone to? And I went up along the crowded street and I searched every place for him. And then I came to Chatham Street, I think it is. And I went in along there and I saw him at the doorway of a bank. He had his back turned to me. He was turned in. And I looked at him and over his shoulder, on an impulse, to a man I had never seen and had not heard described very accurately, I said, by any chance, would you be George Fitzmaurice? And he pivoted. You know, like a like a railway engine, he came around very slowly, and he looked at me, and he had the loveliest little face I've ever seen in my life. It was a apple face. It was carved out of an apple. It was beautifully rounded, and it was uh, like a boy's face in a way. And then he said to me, "I am," and I said quietly, "I said to him, you know, we are very proud of you in Kerry." And he said, why are you proud of me in Kerry? Well, I said, because you created Morgan Quill and you created Jaminy in the loft and you created, oh, many, many beautiful and memorable characters. And suddenly he stopped and I, I saw that the old man was crying. And he said, he said very, very, you know, sadly, then he said, well, that's something anyway. When he was over 80, he wrote to Mrs Mulcair in Ballybunion, saying how lonely he was. She tried to persuade him to go into a local nursing home, but at the last moment he backed out. And so he remained in Dublin, his last apartment being at 3 Hartcore Street, and it was there that he died in May 1963. He was found about 12 hours after his death. More than likely, he would have preferred it that way. Since his death, there has been a further revival of his plays. The King of the Barnumen, a play found in his effects, was successfully staged at the Peacock in 1967, and The Dandy Dolls was performed there two years later. In the same year, the Dolman Press brought out a complete edition of his plays, and followed it this year with a short biography by Howard K. Slaughter. George Fitzmaurice has earned for himself a permanent place in Irish literature. Firstly, as a folk playwright, recording faithfully the customs and idioms of North Kerry but he was also a craftsman of the highest order, being master of the use of rhythmical dialogue and firm characterization. Perhaps most important of all, he would be remembered for his unique view of life, life in its most abstract terms. Writing in the Piedish, he summed up for us as follows his philosophy of life. What folly and vanity there is 
in this short world, but what was in this at